hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney with the Maritime Ireland Radio Show. How much do you know about containers, the lifeblood of the global supply chain through the shipping industry? They're seen often enough on lorries on the roads around Ireland, on a ship in port, on trains passing through the countryside. But what about their safety and security? Most we see on the road are what we call dry containers. These are what we see on the back of trucks and on ships on trains and so on. So we don't have information regarding what kind of a journey uh, the actual dry container and the contents had. There are about 30 million shipping containers and 6,000 container ships around the world. Mike Hayes is leading research in University College Cork, working with a company in Kerry to track containers. He'll be telling us about this research. We'll also hear in this edition about the offshore island communities, that they've had enough of government reports about their future and it's time to take action to implement those reports. And a special moment for an RNLI lifeboat coxswain as he describes how he followed his father. It's 25 years ago since he brought the last boat into the harbour and I remember it like yesterday. It just shows that the lifeboat is the heart to most small fishing communities. I'm very pleased to tell you that from this edition, we'll be having reports in each broadcast from national organizations who are joining with us in regular coverage of their maritime activities. The RNLI, Kogal Ilona Heron, the Islands Federation, Fisheries Ireland, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, Water Safety Ireland and Birdwatch about seabirds. And hopefully more will join us as we build the community of the sea. Because the sea around our coastline, our inland waters, our lakes and rivers are all part of Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. Socially and economically vital. Ireland's connection with the sea is as old as time itself. And because we're an island nation, shipping is our supply lifeline, and containers are a vital part of that. The pictures of the huge container ship ever given, stacked with 18,000 containers, when it blocked the Suez Canal, brought starkly to public attention the vital importance of containers. There's a shortage of them around the world. This week, even Coca-Cola had to begin shipping its product in bulk carriers, which would have needed nearly 3,000 containers. The fallout from the COVID pandemic restrictions has caused a lot of difficulties, affecting shipping and the movement of containers, and some chaos caused in ports. It all demands huge logistics to control where they are. On the banks of the River Lee in Cork, the Tyndall National Institute, part of University College Cork, is working with NetFASA based in Dingle on developing the smart container so that container movements can be tracked, traced and made more secure. Mike Hayes is Head of ICT for Energy Efficiency at Tyndall and outlined to me this research development. Most we see on the road are what we call dry containers. These are what we see on the back of trucks and on ships, 
on trains and so on. And most of these, um, the, most of these containers are not sensorized. So we don't have information regarding what kind of a journey uh, the actual dry container and the contents had. And there is certainly a huge amount of interest out there amongst the stakeholders, the people who are uh, forwarding the goods, the insurers, the customers, the suppliers, and so on. As to what kind of a journey um, has my container, and indeed what kind of a uh, journey has had the uh, the contents have had. And we believe that there's a huge opportunity here for us to uh, insert sensors into these containers so that we uh, gather this information. Temperature, humidity, any vibration, vibrations that they've had on the journey and so on. But the problem we have is that the, uh, the battery life of the kind of sensors that we want to use here will only give us about one or two years of battery life which is completely inadequate for uh, the kind of journeys that these containers are going on. So what we are looking at is opportunities for us to extend the life, battery life of these devices. And we're looking at doing this by using technologies such as energy harvesting. Now, energy harvesting would be well known to us in the, the larger realm, for example, uh, wind turbines and solar panels at the, the macro scale. But there's also similar opportunities at the, the micro scale as well. So taking tiny vibrations, tiny temperature differences, low levels of light, and converting this to electricity and using this to extend the battery life. So therein is the, the value proposition. Uh, we can extend the battery life of these devices to many years, you know, from the present 12 to 18 months that, that we have. And uh, that this is the, uh, the area where which we, uh, we collaborate with, uh, with Infest. That's a fascinating development because very often we see these containers, obviously, as you said, on the, on the decks of ships, uh, on lorries all over the country. Uh, sometimes they look worn, sometimes they look like they've had a long, a long life. So being able to track them obviously has a number of, of benefits, such as the wear and tear, the replacement, the safety, knowing what's in them, knowing that it's been carried for a sufficient time, not too long. And of course, there's all sorts of implications, security. It's, it's a very wide area of research you've been involved in. Absolutely, yeah, and it's a, it's a huge area. I mean, obviously there are a small number, maybe 5% of the containers, uh, whereby these things have their own refrigerations and complex sensing systems, but 95% of them don't have it, and there's quite a large market out there to put some sort of sensory infrastructure into these so that, again, we can see what kind of a journey they've had, have they been tampered with, interfered with, you know, have we met all the regulatory um standards in terms of the the temperature, the humidity and so on that these uh, these containers have. So as you can imagine, there's a huge interest out there. And as you correctly said as well, things like um, tracking the assets as well. Uh, we can reduce our carbon footprint if we know exactly where our assets are on their journey so that we can optimize getting them, you know, from the from the road, you know, into the port, onto the ship and then being collected efficiently on the other side. So many, many people in the stakeholder system very interested in the data that we gather along the way. Containers effectively being, if I can put it like this, Michael, the lifeblood of transport now, this has international application, the work that's being done in, in Tyndall and Cork. It really has international worldwide application then, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, most of these containers go on pretty lengthy journeys. Very often they're at sea for six to eight weeks. You know, they're on roads for, for many days on end. So, um, you know, they, 
getting goods from A to B can take quite a, a lengthy amount of time. So we need to make sure that we have a, a resilient uh, infrastructure in place to capture what's going on throughout those journeys. And we see many, many international opportunities, not just for ourselves, but for uh, Irish SMEs such as NetFasta as well. Huge potential here for NetFasta, who already have a great international reputation to further their, uh, their value proposition. I mean, they already have a very nice communications infrastructure for the um, for the refrigerated um, containers, and they now see huge opportunity to go after the other 95% of the market, which are these uh, so-called dry containers. Great to see that research work being done in Cork and at the Tyndall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a lot of people don't realise is that we have a huge in, uh, infrastructure within Ireland, um, not only in Tyndall, but a lot of the companies around us as well. Uh, we have very strong core competencies in electronics, particularly microelectronics and power electronics. And we really need to bring together all of the people who have the, the key bits of knowledge together to see how can we all collaborate together to find ways to minimize the power consumption of these devices and to do smart things like using the ambient energies uh, to further extend the battery life. So uh, definitely availing of the ecosystem and the relationships and the technical core knowledge that we have uh, my case at the Tyndall Institute, University College Cork, working with the NetFasa company of Dingle. On a different aspect of research, it's interesting to see that scientists are examining why the South Pole has had its coldest winter temperatures since recording began back in 1957. Average temperature of minus 78 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 61 degrees Celsius, was recorded at a research station on a high plateau in Antarctica. Quite a contrast to recent weather patterns. We'll head now to Inishlar Island in Clube, County Mayo, from where Rhoda Twombly, Secretary of Kogal Ilona Heron, reports on the attitude of offshore island communities to the many reports by the state about the future of those communities. But what about action on their recommendations? The Joint Committee on Social Protection, Community and Rural Development and the Islands heard representations from Kogolilonairn and Cornelon on policy measures as outlined in Chapter 10 of the government's document, Our Rural Future. Opinions were presented on actions needed for the offshore islands to thrive, or indeed to survive. In her opening statement, Kogol Chair Ashling Morden of Shirkin Island noted that Our Rural Future addresses the need to progress vital infrastructure for island communities. A housing report produced by Kogol in 2021 highlighted recurring issues impeding long-term permanent housing, a lack of year-round rental properties, houses available for winter are often poorly insulated or difficult to heat, a disproportionate number of holiday homes, many derelict houses, planning issues, resident buyers priced out of the market, and a lack of available council, community, or gateway-style housing. Simon Murray from Inishbofan, County Galway, who is a lifelong islands advocate and member of the Kogolinanairn board, said the islands are on the edge, literally and figuratively. Islands are net contributors to the economy through tourism, business, fishing, and farming, and need the funding to be reinvested back into the islands. He referenced the depopulation of islands caused by the lack of government-focused island funding and that historically islands have become depopulated for the want of very small expenditure. 
requesting reinstating the island capital funding with a meaningful budget, Mr. Murray stressed that while the population figures are small, it is paramount for the state to retain its island populations and not allow another island to become depopulated. Cathy Nigoyle, chair of Cornelon and manager of Corcoman Forbaha Arden, also spoke passionately about the future of offshore islands. While she welcomes the proposed islands action plan, she's seen many plans in her 30-year experience as a development officer, most suffering from a lack of implementation. Nigoyle points out that there is a popular notion of island life being idyllic. However, there are many difficult challenges. She believes that islands are Ireland's poor relations, and it is a constant battle to preserve existing essential services with little resources to fight for additional beneficial programs. Government needs to ask itself, are they serious about sustaining the islands into the future and hopes that the committee follows through on its work as the islands are now at a crossroads where a way of life, a culture, may be lost without implementation of an action plan. Moray Muilan, CEO of Cornelon, congratulated Minister Humphreys on her work in finalizing the transitional leader funding, as well as pushing forward with the 10-year islands development plan. However, she noted that previous reports on island issues need to be revisited with their recommendations acted on. Additionally, the offshore islands should be treated as one area, especially with regard to leader and SIGAP funding, and that this funding should be administered by an island-based company. We await further news on all this vital work. But till then, it's Slon from the Islands. Rhoda Twombly reporting from Inishinar Island on the work of the Islands Federation, Kogolilon Heron. To the southeast now on the fishing port and harbour of Dunmore East in County Waterford, which has a new Shannon-class lifeboat at a cost of 2.4 million euros. It will be named the William and Agnes Ray, replacing the trend-class Elizabeth and Ronald, which has been on service since 1996. Coxswain mechanic Roy Abrahamson brought the new Shannon-class lifeboat into Dunmore East Harbour, where a very big crowd watched. Back in 1996, his late father, Coxswain mechanic Walter Abrahamson, had done the same. Neve Stevenson, Irish media manager for the RNLI, talked to him. While it was a great arrival, the crew had spent several days on the voyage training. They'd come from RNLI headquarters in Poole, which they'd left on the previous Sunday, heading for Dunmore. Monday then we started training. So there was three days of training, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And Wednesday then, Wednesday afternoon we left Poole and started heading home. Um, first call was Brixham. Uh, stayed the night there, then the next day then back out training again on the way to Newland. Stayed the night in Newland and then left Newland then and went straight up for Kinsale. So that was a that was a long leg up there. Train along the way again. Uh, stayed the night in Kinsale. Uh, next day I left Kinsale. Uh, train along the way again up as far as Yall. We called into Paddy Cotton to say hello. Um, and then Left you all this morning and arrived here then at 13.41. And so you're training the whole time it's along constant. that. So it's a, it's a use for 
getting the lads yeah, that's, around the boat. That's to, why we don't come a direct route straight yeah. home. It's just get the hours up on the boat, get everyone used to using all the systems, and it's just repetitive, just using it over and over and over again, just to just get the hours popped up on the boat and get used to using it. And what happens to the lifeboat crew come down when you're there, have a look over the boat, is that kind of stuff? I notice you always kind of stop at lifeboat stations. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, due to COVID, we couldn't even down to actually go inside and have a yeah. look. But I have to say that when we called in to Kinsale, Valley Cotton, Royal, it was just fantastic turnout, you know, real interest in the boat and people, and there was nothing but positive con- um, comments the whole time, you know. But you talked about the training. How long before your whole station do you think will be up? When, when does that change over? I don't think people realise the, the new lifeboats arrive, but it's yeah. not on service. No, 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 no. So our old Trent class will be on service for the next month so we'll be training on the new boat getting all the rest of the crew up to speed before we as a station then say we think we're ready at that stage uh, the trainers will come back again do final assessments and then make a decision say yes we think you're ready now or you might need more training but it's kind of a joint effort we'll we'll say we Mm -hmm. think we're ready and they'll come and confirm Mm -hmm. it and then the new boat will come on station then and what was it like today when you came around and you saw all those people? I don't know where they came from. Literally in the space of 10 minutes, there was a, just a lovely row of people along the harbour wall there. Was that emotional? It's all a bit of a blur at the minute, too. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's hard to take it all in, you know, especially with the weather. You know, if it was a fine sunny day, you'd say, but, like, it, the weather wasn't great, and yet you see the turnout of us. Yeah. That's what it's all and about. Honestly, you know. you're following in the footsteps of your dad. I know a lot of people have said it to you today, and you've been very kind of honest about that. Do you, do you are you kind of thinking of that, or do you, is that something you'll think about later? Uh, it's 25 years ago since he brought the last boat into the harbour, and I remember it like yesterday. Yeah. And I remember how I felt looking at him brought it in. So it's it's uh, yeah. Uh, it is a real community effort, the whole lifeboat. It is a centre of the community and, you know, any time we have fundraisers and that, we're overwhelmed by the turnout of people and generosity and it just shows that the lifeboat is the heart of most small fishing communities like that, so it's, it's great to see. Don Maurice to RNLI Coxon, Roy Abrahamson. It's good to hear from lifeboat crews who often don't talk a lot about the wonderful work they do. So it's good to hear also from Brendan Dunn, who's been a crew member at Dunmore's for 36 years, and described to Neil Stevenson how it feels to move from one boat, which has given great service, to another. I've been crewman for 36 years in the station. Uh, this is my third boat. I was initially started on the Waveney-class lifeboat, then the current Trent-class lifeboat, and now the new Shannon-class lifeboat. For me, this is a really important day. Um, it's the culmination of many years' work in the RNLI, and it's great to see this boat arriving here in Dunmore East. Uh, it means a huge amount to the community here. As a maritime community, um, it, it's so important that we have a life-saving facility, and this boat from the RNLI is fantastic. The Shannon-class lifeboat is one of the greatest, best boats in her, of her design, and the capabilities that it enhances here for life-saving is, is really fantastic to see. Does the heart win out over the head? When you were on it and you were younger crew, you know, member yeah. or whatever, yeah. And but is the technology, how do you look at it? Are, are all lifeboats the same, or is this, like, the most incredible lifeboat? Well, 
if you look at every lifeboat, if you look at the, today in the harbour, there was an old Watson-class lifeboat, which was the old Angle lifeboat, and she came, she was here, a uh, gentleman purchased her, and she was here visiting the harbour, and she stood by. So at the time, that would have been the, the technology development, and each boat furthered that then onto the Waveney class. Every boat saw development in technology and capability, right up to the present boat, which is now the ultimate of what we see at, at present. So the capabilities are enhanced and developed, and it gives the the whole search and rescue operation in the southeast. Um, it, it brings it up a, a huge step, and it gives the crews um, an extra ability to be able to save lives at sea. Um, for me, you ask about the heart and head. It's a combination of both. The head tells me that this is a great thing to see because it, it, it's so advanced and so technically, etc. Um, my heart obviously goes with it because it, having 36 years behind me in the lifeboats, um, it's great to see improvements for younger people coming through. It matches, uh, the, the, I suppose, the technology levels that they're certainly used to. But at the end of the day, it's a lifeboat and the seamanship has to come into it and all of that. So the technology and the training that's provided uh, brings all that together for us. We knew that this, what we were bringing to Dunmore East, was something really to, 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 to hail and uh, to see that crowd there today. As I said, we had a lump in our throat. There's no answers to those kind of things. They're, they're just, they just happen. And we were hoping that today would be a, a reasonable day for people to see, which it was. The rain held off reasonably well and we got a little bit of water to, to show the performance of the boat. And um, there was such goodwill there. It's just incredible. And you, you can't, you can't, um, you, you just can't buy that kind of stuff. <laughs> Many more years on the lifeboat, or what? What, what do you um, see happening? I've approximately three more years. But like the way I look at it is, you 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 just get on with it. Um, you, you do what you do. Uh, you go to the call. You go to the shouts. You go to the training, and you encourage others that are coming along. I suppose with the experience of, of the number of years I've been in it, you see that people uh, need uh, help and development, and you always you keep the door open all the times that they're able to you know adapt to what's there because you have to be patient. Um, it takes a long number of years and uh, all of that and to develop the skills and whatever. So from my point of view, I have a few years left in it, but to me, I, I don't see that as an end. I see that as just part of what life is. You, you do these things in life and um, you complete it and you've done your job and you've done the best you can. And if you can do something that helps other people, um, quietly get on with it and uh, go from there. Brendan Dunn talking to Neil Stevenson as the new Shannon-class lifeboat arrived in Dunmore East and will go on service shortly. Fair sailing to all aboard in the years ahead. From Dunmore East on the southeast coast, we head now to the northwest and the Donegal coastline and the story of the shipwreck of HMS Wasp near Torrey Island, told in a new historical novel as Justin Marr reports. In the early hours of the 22nd of September 1884, the HMS Wasp, a Bantara-class composite screw gunboat, ran aground on a reef near Tory Island. The initial collision broke the hull and she began to quickly fill with water. Within 15 minutes, she was sunk. It was wedged between a couple of sea stacks. They were making a last-minute, last-ditch effort to turn. I believe the ship got caught sideways to the waves, and so the waves just pounded it. And uh, while it had an iron frame, it still had a wooden hull and a wooden deck, and all that broke 
very quickly under that pounding. So uh, the ship went down fast. They didn't even have time to lower the lifeboats. For decades, stories have surrounded the sinking of the HMS Wasp. Was the ship sabotaged? Was it human error? Or was there a supernatural reason for the wreck? Had the islanders placed a curse on it using a local stone? Author Tom Sigafoos has been pulling at the strings surrounding the wasp sinking in his historical novel, The Cursing Stone. There's something about a disaster that is deeply compelling. I first heard a modified version of it that somehow or other the wasp had been sailing during the daytime across a sea that didn't have a ripple in it and the islanders turned the cursing stone and the boat just sank right in front of their eyes. Well, that clearly didn't happen, but it had persisted as a legend for a while. What I found to be fascinating detail about how the ship with the best uh, maritime technology of the day, and yet they managed to get themselves stuck in a way that let the waves batter and break the ship and sink it in about 15 minutes. And all this happening at the foot of a lighthouse that you could see for 16 miles. So there was clearly a story here. The novel revolves around young Rory Mullen, a native of Tory Island, who, through circumstances beyond his control, ends up aboard the HMS Wasp as the vessel and its crew are brought in to help carry out evictions. It chronicles life at sea and on the island during a period of tumultuous change. That's quite something to see, isn't it, Mullen? Rory was astonished to find Lieutenant Gubby standing beside him. The lieutenant looked alert and energetic. Nothing like his usual dispirited self. I sometimes wonder if morale would be higher under sail. Rory suppressed a smile at Gubby's unexpected officer-like tone. The men do seem excited, sir. So they are. Now take heed, Mullen. You may be seeing one of the last of these exercises. The bosun's pipe shrilled again. The men on deck pulled on their lines, lifting the canvas sails with a clacking sound. Armstrong strode up and down the deck, shouting orders. Easy over there. Keep it even. The sails unfolded in stiff accordion pleats, guided by the men who stood on the yard arms high above the deck. The mainsail caught the wind and ballooned out like the belly of a pregnant mare. The men on the deck staggered back to take up the sudden slack in the lines. They lifted the sail to full height and the wind stretched it into a graceful curve. As the smaller sails opened and arched, Rory felt a complex humming underneath his feet. Sails, masts, and ship established a balance, and the wasp strained to move forward. Rory turned to Gubby, but the lieutenant was no longer there. For a moment, he wondered if that confident, well-spoken man had ever been there at all. When I was writing the story, the thing that I was most fascinated with personally was the history of technology and how in the 1880s, the old world was being supplanted by industrialization and by machinery. And that was uh, also reflected in the culture of the island. The islanders had apportioned land, for instance, among themselves so that it, there would be a fair distribution to all parties. And when they tried to bring that system into line with the English system of taxation and precise measurements and boundaries and so forth, there was just no way it could happen. This goes back to the legend that I first learned. The Tory Islanders thought that the wasp was coming for them. People hadn't paid taxes and rents for years, 
they hadn't needed to, but it became the property of a businessman uh, from Manchester who had bought it to own some land and to collect some rent. And so during the land wars in the 1800s, they started uh, getting the Admiralty to agree to let the naval ships participate in the evictions. The evictions were nasty, nasty businesses. And if anything, taking the land back from the people who'd lived on it for years and years was such a cruel enterprise. It is an interesting time. It's, it's kind of the, the birth of the, the world that we find ourselves living in. The changes weren't just political or economic. It was a period of change spiritually as well, as the traditions of the islanders were challenged by the Catholic Church. One of the people that, who was so helpful to me was Father John Boyce, who was the priest on Tory at the time. He was a devout Romanist. He was very articulate in describing how the Tory Island was one of the last outposts of Celtic Christianity, including the blessing of the little bits of soil that they would, all the fishermen would put in their boats to prevent the boats from sinking. And they also firmly believed that that blessed soil would keep rats away and uh, keep them out of the boats and keep them off Tory Island. Those, what he described as fanciful practices were directly in conflict with the emergingly stern uh, doctrines of the Catholic Church. So it became a kind of a microcosm of what was happening all over Ireland. We think we live in unsettled times now, but it was just as full of uh, conflict and confusion and divided loyalties uh, then as it is now. At the time, a court-martial exonerated the six survivors, finding that the cause of the Wasp's demise was careless navigation. But through writing his novel, author Tom Sigafus took away an important lesson from the story of the HMS Wasp and the Cursing Stone. I do believe that people tend to behave the way they're treated. And I think what we saw in the the Cursing Stone, that it's not a good idea. In fact, it's really a a self-defeating idea to be too strict and too demanding with our uh, fellow human beings. If the book helps illustrate the futility of that old way, points the direction toward a more uh, expansive view of human relationships, then uh, that's what I would hope everybody would take away from it. The Cursing Stone is available from a number of online bookstores, such as Amazon and WH Smith. It's also available for free on a subscription basis at Tom's website, tomsigafoos.com. That's T-O-M-S-I-G-A-F-O-O-S dot com. And so we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, which is broadcast on 18 community radio stations around Ireland. And they are in Cork on CRY 104FM Yall, West Cork FM, Bear Island Radio and UCC Radio. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM. On Dundalk FM, on Athlone Community Radio, on Kilkenny City Radio, and in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM Belmullet. On Southwest Clare Radio, that's Radio Kirkabashkeen. On West Limerick, 102 FM, and Tip Midwest Radio in Tipperary. And there are podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Spotify, and the Marine Times.ie. 
Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime community. Your views are most welcome. Email them to MaritimeIrelandRadioShow at gmail.com. That's MaritimeIrelandRadioShow at gmail.com. Our website is TomMcSweeneyMarine.ie. There's a blog there every week. The phone and text number is 0872-555-197. That's 0872-555-197. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. More marine news on Twitter, follow me at Tom McSweeney. Until our next broadcast, the usual wish of fair sailing.